Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, grant to your people now open ears and understanding hearts to receive your word as it is proclaimed. May your holy word prove profitable this morning for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that your people might be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Please open your Bibles again to our sermon text, Romans 15, 14 through 33. And as I read it earlier, I won't uh, read it again now. But I won't be reading the verses as we come to them in our, in our sermon. Every year around New Year's, Lydia and I will take some time to do a yearly review. We look back and we reflect upon the past year and give thanks for good memories. We give thanks to God. We also look forward and we make plans for the coming year. Now as Paul is approaching the end of his letter to the Romans, we see something similar to a yearly review at least what we call a yearly review here in this section of the letter. First, he reflects back on the ministry he has accomplished and how it has all been by the grace of God, by the power of God working in and through him. He also speaks of his future plans, his missionary ambition to preach the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Christ. And he shares his prayer requests appealing to the church in Rome to strive together with him in prayer. So it's true, the letter is working towards its conclusion. You might think, is there anything important here at the end? But there are still several very important matters here for us to cover, and there are many lessons for us to glean here from this passage. So this morning, we'll consider what we can learn from Paul concerning how we should view our work, how we should make our plans, and how we should seek God together in prayer. So to get started, let's first consider looking back, Paul's ministry so far. Reading verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. If you'll recall back to last time, Paul concluded that section with a beautiful benediction And now he's beginning this section of concluding remarks with encouragement to the believers in Rome. Now here it's helpful to remember that Paul is writing to a church that he had never visited. And he has just boldly exhorted them about how to resolve the problems causing division in their midst. And he's doing this to a church he's never visited. And so as wisdom dictates, after giving some critical feedback, he follows that up with an encouragement regarding their strengths as a church. Even though he has written to them as an apostle with apostolic authority, written to instruct them, he now encourages them that he considers them full of goodness, full of knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. And he continues in verse 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles 
in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Here in verse 15, we see Paul as being very diplomatic. Even though he admits he has written quite boldly, he certainly understates things when he characterizes the letter as being merely a reminder to the church. Now, it's true that all that Paul has written is concerning the gospel that they share in common, the gospel they already knew, and the implications of the gospel. And yet, consider what he has written. He has written them what has come to be considered the most theologically brilliant letter in the history of mankind. It is a reminder in the sense that he has simply given them the gospel. He has proclaimed to them Jesus Christ. And Paul's authority to write to them is based on the grace given to him by God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. And as I've noted, the church in Rome was predominantly a Gentile church. Even though it wasn't Paul's church, he loved this church. He wanted it to grow, to mature, to flourish. He wanted, as he writes, the offering of the Gentiles to be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul here is using priestly language in a very interesting way. First, he uses a rare term for minister to describe himself. And this term is strongly connected with the temple and priestly language. He also speaks of himself quite directly uh, in the priestly service of the gospel and speaks of the Gentiles as an offering to God. Of course, in the New Testament, Christ is the final sacrifice and there are to be no more animals slaughtered as sacrifices. But as Paul said way back at the beginning of chapter 12, we are all to present ourselves as holy, living sacrifices to God. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And by writing this letter, he is equipping the church in Rome to better offer their lives as living sacrifices as they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, all to the glory of God. I would say to you, to think of your work as priestly and sacred isn't something that's exclusive to ministers like Paul. While everyone else, you just labor in the mundane, the secular world. All of life for the Christian is to be a living sacrifice offered to God. And therefore, all of God's people are priests living for him, serving him in all that you do. As Paul writes in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Next, Paul writes of how he is an instrument in the master's hand. Verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Paul states here that he is proud of what he has accomplished in Christ's service. And in fact, the ESV here softens the language. Other English translations simply put it, In Christ I have reason to boast of my work for God. 
Of course, Paul would be the first to say that we should not boast of our own achievements. But as he has said in the previous statements, and will continue to make clear, his ministry is as a result of the grace of God given to him. He is proud of what God has accomplished through him. And for this, he gives thanks and praise to God. In fact, another way of translating this word to boast is to glory. And in this case, the glory goes not to Paul, but to God who has worked through Paul. And so he continues on this theme in verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So Paul makes abundantly clear here that he is speaking of his ministry not as something he has done in his own strength, but rather as something which Christ has accomplished through him. Paul is merely the instrument in the hand of the master. And Paul has been successful only because Christ is masterful in using Paul for accomplishing Christ's own purposes. As Christ himself said in John 15, 5, a passage on the vine and the branches, apart from me, you can do nothing. And Paul describes the means he uses in his ministry, first by word and deed. Paul explained in depth back in chapter 10 how the preaching of the gospel is God's chosen means to grant saving faith to those whom God has chosen for himself. But gospel preaching is to be adorned by good works, just as Faith never remains alone, but is always accompanied by good works. So also, gospel preaching should be accompanied by good works in a properly functioning gospel ministry. Whether that's on the mission field, like in Paul's ministry, or in a local church. By word and works. Then Paul continues his list of means in verse 19a. By the power of signs and wonders. By the power of of the Spirit of God. As an apostle, Paul's gospel ministry was accompanied by powerful signs and wonders. Quite a few of these miraculous works done by Paul are recorded in the book of Acts, although I imagine there were many more that were not written down. These include two individual healings that are highlighted, plus two times where it simply says, many people were healed. He also struck blind Elymas the magician. He cast the spirit of divination out of the slave girl in Philippi. He survived the deadly viper bite on the island of Malta. Not to mention the fact that he raised Eutychus from the dead. Finally, all these means of ministry, word, deed, signs and wonders, Paul says are by the power of the Spirit of God. This is the only way to do effective ministry. Without the Spirit of God, there is no power for gospel ministry. And we have verse 19b. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul says he has fulfilled his ministry, covering this large span of territory starting from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. And this is a large Roman province north of Greece, running all the way almost to the border of modern-day Italy. 
Now, Paul uses the word fulfill here. It has the sense that the work has been completed. Now, certainly, Paul had not preached the gospel in every city, town, village, and hamlet in this large area. So in what sense could Paul say that the work was complete? His gospel ministry was fulfilled. Paul's strategy was to establish churches in strategically important cities in each region, and that was now accomplished. These churches now had their own pastors and elders, and they would work to send out church planters to spread the gospel to other cities and over time to evangelize these entire regions. And historically, we know this is exactly what happened. Paul's mission strategy turned out to be extremely effective. So with one major task complete, he goes on with his next task in verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Here Paul Paul says his ambition is to plant new churches in virgin territory where there is no knowledge of Christ, for this is the mission that Christ has specifically called him to do. As an apostle to the Gentiles, he has been called to go out and to lay the foundation. Others will be called to build upon the foundation that Paul has laid. Some will sow the seed, others will water. But God gives the growth. That's not to say that foundation laying is the only work that Paul does. Consider the letter that we are studying. Paul is writing to a church that he did not plant. He is working to build them up through his writing. But even this, even this is connected with missions as he is hoping that they will support him in his missionary work. Paul was also a tent maker. But that too, raised funds to support his missionary work. Now Paul supports his ambition to frontier missions with an Old Testament citation here from Isaiah 52, 15. Those who have never been told of him, he will see, told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the final verse of Isaiah 52. It's immediately before the famous chapter 53 about the suffering servant, the prophetic passage foretelling the redemptive suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's ambition is to fulfill this prophecy that those who have never been told of him might behold by faith the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that he is that suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. Paul will give more details about exactly where he is headed as we continue in the next section. And now let me ask you, what are your ambitions in life? Now certainly your ambition does not need to be to serve as a frontier missionary like Paul. But are you letting your Christian faith shape your life goals? The Christian's ambitions certainly cannot be to simply 
accumulate as much wealth and fame and pleasure for yourself as possible. Certainly this is a, a larger topic, a question that many young people struggle with. But the basic point this morning is to let your Christian faith, your service to the Lord, shape your ambitions for life. Let's move on to our second point this morning. We've looked back, Paul's past ministry. Now let's look forward to Paul's future ministry. In verses 22 through 29, Paul outlines his future plans considering, concerning his mission to Spain, the fellowship offering for the poor in Jerusalem, and his visit to Rome. So first, Paul's mission to Spain, verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul has been busy planting churches in the east from Jerusalem to Illyricum and that has kept him from a long desired visit to Rome. Now that he continues that work at last complete, he can finally make plans to visit Rome. But we see that Rome is not his first priority. Rather, his main focus continues to be on frontier missions. Paul's goal is to reach Spain, to plant churches there. But he would like to visit Rome along the way. He would like to stay in Rome for some time, to enjoy their company with the hope that they would support him in his mission to Spain. And Paul uses a technical term here that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to support for mission for ministry and this could refer both to financial support for Paul on his journey or it could refer to other workers who would accompany Paul similar to the way men like Barnabas Luke or Mark had traveled alongside him and assisted him perhaps they would not only finance his ministry but provide a team of workers to accompany Paul for his work in Spain Then in verse 25 and following, we learn that Rome is not the first stop on his itinerary. Verse 25, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings... They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. We read more about this collection for the saints in Jerusalem in Paul's two letters to the Corinthians. This project was a major priority for Paul. It must have been because he's going over a thousand miles in the wrong direction to deliver this gift to Jerusalem. This is about much more than just alleviating poverty among the saints in Jerusalem. He uses two key terms, two key terms to describe this work in these verses. First, in verse 25, he calls it a ministry from the Greek word diakoneo, the same term from which we get our word for deacon. But secondly, he calls it a fellowship offering from the Greek word koinonia. 
This is a reference to what we call today the communion of the saints. A mutual sharing which binds together the entire church of Jesus Christ. This is particularly significant because it crosses the boundary between Jew and Gentile. As Paul says here that the spiritual blessings of the Jews have overflowed to the Gentiles and now they are showing their gratitude by giving back this material offering, this fellowship offering. And the goal is that the entire church, both Jew and Gentile, will be brought to greater unity through this gift. And that's why it's so important to Paul. And so Paul himself will accompany this offering to Jerusalem as recorded in the book of Acts. And then, only after he's gone a thousand miles in the wrong direction, his plan is to travel to Rome. Verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Here we see that Paul looks forward to his visit to Rome with a confident expectation that Christ will fully bless this visit. In fact, I believe this expectation is for a mutual blessing, both as he ministers to the Romans and as he receives a blessing by his time with them, and hopefully by their support for his mission to Spain. Now here it's worth asking, did Paul ever make it to Spain? Church tradition says yes. All modern historians tend to be very skeptical. The most solid historical evidence comes from the first epistle of Clement of Rome, written in 95 AD. He writes that Paul had preached in the East and in the West. He won the genuine glory for his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the West. First Clement 5, 5 through 7. Now that final phrase, the farthest limits of the West, is generally understood to be a reference to Spain. And as Clement wrote only about 30 years after Paul's martyrdom, he's really the only reliable historical source we have to answer this question. And so based on this evidence, I think it is quite likely that Paul did reach Spain. And all these things, we must remember. The wisdom of Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Whenever we make our plans, we do so saying, if the Lord wills, We will do this or we will do that. And we don't know what the Lord wills concerning our future. That doesn't mean we don't make our plans. We do so and then we submit them to the Lord in prayer. That brings us to our third main point this morning. Strive in prayer with me. As he nears the conclusion of the letter, Paul shares his prayer requests with the Roman church. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And Paul doesn't merely ask the Romans to pray but he appeals to them to strive together with him in prayer. He uses this imagery of wrestling with God, of struggling alongside him in his ministry. I also want to point out how Paul's prayer requests naturally flow from the task that is right before him. 
He is carrying this fellowship offering to the saints in Jerusalem, and so he desires that it would be successfully received. And so that's what he asks them to pray for. He asks them to pray first that he be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Paul knew that in returning to Jerusalem, he was entering into hostile territory. Imagine if the Jerusalem were the Wild West. There would have been posters plastered on the side of every building with Paul's face on them with the words, wanted, dead, or alive. As we know from the book of Acts, the prophet Agabus even foretells that Paul will be arrested by the Jews if he goes up to Jerusalem. And even though he sought to take precautions against being seized by the Jews, he was arrested almost immediately upon coming to Jerusalem. And yet, there is a sense in which he was delivered from them. And this prayer was answered as he was protected from their plans to kill him on more than one occasion. Protected by the Romans of all people. And this might not be exactly how Paul intended or expected his prayers to be answered, but we know that God always answers prayer according to his infinite wisdom for the ultimate good of his people and for his glory. In the end, Paul's arrest leads to his appeal to Caesar, which provides him transport to Rome so that he ends up in the very city he intended to visit. Paul's second request is that his service for Jerusalem would be acceptable to the saints. Perhaps he is concerned that the Jews in Jerusalem would not accept a gift coming from the Gentiles in Greece and Macedonia, especially as they were surrounded by unbelieving Jews who were so hostile to Gentiles. Or he might not be concerned so much about the gift, but just the more general ministry he hopes to do when he arrives in Jerusalem. How the book of Acts does not record anything about the receipt of the gift. It does say in Acts 21.17, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. I also think it's safe to assume the gift was safely delivered by Paul and received by the saints in Jerusalem. As for Paul's ministry in Jerusalem, he was only there for one night before he was arrested in the temple. Still, even as he was arrested, he had the opportunity to powerfully share his testimony of seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus on the way to, on the road to Damascus. So I would say, even in that brief time he had to minister, this prayer was answered in the affirmative. Verse 32 is not so much a third request as the purpose for the first two requests. So that, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Note the key words here, by God's will. Everything is subject to that, as Paul well knows. We've seen that the first request was not answered exactly as Paul might have liked, although he was protected from the unbelieving Jews. The second was answered, with the result that Paul arrived in Rome, although he did so in chains. Now, you might think he did not come with joy, but you only need to read the letter to the Philippians to see that chains and imprisonment were no hindrance to Paul's rejoicing in the Lord. Even though he was a captive in Rome, we see in the last chapter of Acts that he had quite a bit of freedom for ministry. And even though he stayed longer than he initially intended, 
he made good use of the time, proclaiming the gospel to all who came to hear. After he requests this prayer, Paul closes the chapter, praying a blessing upon the church in Rome. Verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is really the third benediction in this chapter filled with blessings for the Romans. In verse 5, Paul spoke of the God of endurance and encouragement. In verse 13, the God of hope. And now it's the God of peace. He likely has in mind that rich Hebrew concept of shalom, referring not just to a cessation of warfare, but to a concept of holistic welfare. May the God of shalom be with you all. Amen. As we look back, we've covered a lot of ground this morning on a few different topics. We've considered how, like Paul, we are called to devote our whole lives to the priestly service of God as living holy sacrifices, well-pleasing to God. As you do so, you are to recognize that you are an instrument in the Master's hand, so that at the end of the day, whatever you accomplish, it is only what the Lord is accomplishing through you all for His greater glory. As you consider your ambitions, let them be shaped by the gospel. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, And all the things of this life will be provided for you. Make your plans, but do so always saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And not only should you carry these plans to the Lord in prayer, but as Paul demonstrates here, you should be sharing your prayers with your brothers and sisters and striving together in prayer for one another. So I'd encourage you, either later today or sometime this week, Take some time for a review. Take some time to look back and look forward. Look back on how the Lord has worked in your life and worked through you. And give thanks and praise to the Lord. And then look forward and consider what plans the Lord would have you make for future service. Consider what your ambition ought to be and how you will serve the Lord. And commit those plans to the Lord. Share them with others that they might strive together with you in prayer with the goal that Christ might be glorified in and through his church. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for the way you have worked in and through your servant Paul. We gave you thanks this morning as we reflected on the way you have worked through the Sunday school program at our church through the past year and look forward to the coming year. And we do pray that even in our own lives, we could look back and look forward at the way you've worked in and through us and look forward to the way you will continue to work through our church in the future. We do pray, Lord, that you would use us as instruments in your hand working for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, working for your greater glory. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.